I hope that you've had those moments, um, those moments where you can look back at your life and, and recall maybe a particular occasion um, when the church has really been the church for you. Do you have those moments? I mean, perhaps you were, you were in a tough place, um, hurt, lonely, confused, whatever, and the church just stepped up. It encouraged you, it strengthened you, provided kindness, counsel, instruction, resources, whatever. Whatever the need was, it met it. You needed the church and it loved you well. And in doing so, pointed you to Jesus. Served you as the, as the hands and feet of Jesus. When that happens, it's, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's a really, really beautiful thing. Maybe that's not been on a particular occasion. Maybe that's just been a theme throughout the course of your life. The church has been a safe place. It has been a kind place. It has been a a life-giving place for you. But here's the thing. The reality is we know that that's not always the case, is it? I mean, I would dare say that that most of us in this room, at, at one point or another, have experienced the church also, the, the, the flip side of that, the other side of that, the church not being that for us. As wonderful as the church can be, at the same time, the church can also drop the ball. It can fail at being at what it's supposed to be. It, 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 can, it can even profoundly wound people. And so the church has the potential to be both, Right? Both a beautiful place and also a potentially very broken place, too. Today we're going to begin a new sermon series. It's on the topic of the church. I'm entitling the series, The Broken and Beautiful Church, because it is. It is both. It's both beautiful and broken at the same time. And one of the reasons we're going to explore this topic is because when we encounter the flip side of that, that the church is dropping the ball, it's brokenness, it's sin. It's understandable to wonder, is the church really worth it? Is it even necessary? Do I need it? Why, why should I even bother with it? Why not throw in the towel? What's to keep us from giving up on it? Others you know, sort of encounter the brokenness of the church and, and they come to the conclusion, well, well we've messed it up. We've messed up the church because, I mean, the church started out great, right? I mean, if you're familiar with Acts chapter 2, when things were just getting off the ground, there's this beautiful description of what the church, not just the ideals of what it was supposed to be, but what it was actually doing. It said the church was was devoted to to learning and growing, that they, they spent time together praying and, and, and enjoying each other's company, fellowshipping, that they were, they were sharing what they had with those in need. And, and God was doing miraculous things in their midst. People were getting saved by the thousands. And so the thought can be, well, you know, we just need to get back to that. We need to get back to the, to, to the good old days. You know, the, the good old days, right? Back when kids respected their elders, cars never broke down, and you know our sports teams always won. Um, the good old days. I think that way about the church too, right? But you know, here's the thing: 
This beautiful picture of the church that it talks about in Acts chapter 2, it didn't last very long. In fact, by the time Acts chapter 5 rolled around, things were beginning to get a little funky. Um, The notion that the past was perfect and, you know, everything now is horrible, um, it's just not true. Because what you find in a good portion of the New Testament are letters. Letters written to churches. Churches that are, that are dealing with all sorts of, of confusion and, and conflict and sin. And we find that especially in the letter that we're going to be looking at throughout the fall. Off and on. In, maybe even into the spring. Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Which is dealing with matters that that can seem to to be very similar to stuff that we're dealing with as 21st century evangelical Reformed Christians, even now. Stuff that we're wrestling with today. So our text for this morning is the introduction to this letter, Paul's letter to the, his first letter to the church uh, at Corinth. So we're going to look at this. This is First uh, Corinthians chapter one, verses one through nine. You can find this in your bulletin on page ten. Let's read this together. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And in every way, you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you unto the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is a federal offense to read someone else's mail. Sure, you knew that, right? That's why I always feel a little nervous. You know, somebody you know, dropped this off in my mailbox, and I'm like, you know, covert operation or something. I'm, I'm nervous. It's a federal offense to start messing with that kind of stuff. But that's essentially what we're doing here, right? I mean, we're reading a letter, 1 Corinthians, that's not, at least in its original writing, was not intended for us. Now, we believe this to be God's word, so in, in that sense, it is intended for us. But, but there's a lot going on here that would be very confusing because we weren't in Corinth, that church, in that particular time. And so to appreciate what, what's in front of us, what we're going to be looking at uh, the next several weeks, um, let's give it a little context. A little context could be helpful. The guy writing this letter, the Apostle Paul, um, and he is the person who founded this church. He spent three and a half years there. But since he left, he's gotten wind that, that things are not going so well in Corinth. Corinth was an interesting place. Um, 
place very similar to, to maybe modern-day New Orleans for us, um, located right on the Mediterranean Sea, attracted a lot of people, okay? A lot of people coming and going, a lot of cultures colliding, a lot of money, a lot of need for the gospel. And so Paul plants a church there. But this new church, full of new believers, a lot of which Gentiles, Jews, both up and running, they were having a lot of problems. For example, they were fighting constantly as they divided themselves up, identifying with with certain people, certain factions. There's all sorts of sexual sin. A man is having an affair with his mother-in-law. Everybody knows about it. They're suing each other in civil court rather than than handling their differences in-house. There's all sorts of confusion about marriage and singleness and divorce and what the gospel has to do with that. they got super spiritual people making rules that God doesn't make and judging people by them. You got people, I mean, the Lord's Supper back then was a, was a full meal. And you got people getting drunk while other people, like, don't get anything at all. You got people treating certain spiritual gifts as if they're superior. They're, they're super Christians, right? You, got even, you even have people who believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I mean, they got all sorts of pastoral, theological issues up and running. It was a mess. But for the For Paul, the fact that the church at Corinth was a mess did not lead him to the conclusion that, well, you know what, this old church thing is kind of a bad idea, you know. Um, We really don't need this thing after all. Just go about your business, love Jesus by yourself. He doesn't do that. Nor does Paul do the, you know, the southern thing, the sweep it under the rug, you know, pretend it's not going on. Or, you know, we're not going to talk about it, at least not until we get to the car, and then we'll you know, talk about it there. But we're not going to deal with it. Instead, he addresses what's going on in the life of this community. But the way he does it is something to behold. Look back at verse 2, if you would. To the church of God that is in Corinth... To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. He refers to these people, this church, as saints. That's actually the the title of our message for today. Called to be saints. Now, I mean, think about this for a second. He's got a lot of stuff he's about to tackle. 16 chapters of wrestling with really complicated pastoral and theological issues before he addresses any of that, any of the craziness that's going on. He calls them saints. What gives? I mean, is he just like buttering them up before he goes in for the kill here? You know, some, some, some flattery, um, just to make it a little, you know, easier to, to, to give the, you know, the hard lesson. I submit to you, no. But something else is happening here. That by describing these people, this church, as saints, before he gets into the nitty-gritty of what's going on there, Paul is displaying for us, us individually and, and corporately as well as the church, in how to deal with sin. And the way he does it is first to address who we are, and then second, 
He talks about what this means. That's actually going to be our two points for the day. Who we are, who believers are, and second, what that means. Let's start with who believers are. Way back when I was a teenager, um, I had the opportunity to to be involved in a mission trip. It it took me out of my cultural context. um, And and during this trip, for the the first time in my life, I had the opportunity uh, to attend an African-American worship service, um, which looked a little bit different from, from what I had experienced thus far. And so, you know, it was a little bit more of a back-and-forth kind of dynamic going on, um, which, I mean, I, I, I loved it. Uh, so, so the song leader at one point was looking uh, at us, and, and, you know, she was saying, you know, all people say, amen, 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 amen. And so there's this singing and kind of, you know, there, there was a, you know, like I said, back-and-forth. We got into it. And then the song leader did this. She said, all the saints say, amen, amen. And we're just kind of standing there like, do we need to sing? <laughs> Is that us? And, and I mean, she call me stupid. I don't know. But, I mean, I did, the idea of calling myself a saint was, 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 was crazy talk. And, and, you know, worship leader saw that we were clueless, and she, you know, she laughed at us and helped us out, and it was great. But, but we learned a little bit that day. Which made sense of the song, you know, when the saints go marching in. Okay, now that, there it is. That makes sense now. But looking back at this incident, you know, it, it showed that we, we didn't get what it really meant to be a saint. You know, in certain church traditions, you know, a saint, maybe Roman Catholic tradition, Anglican tradition, whatever, this, the, the, the term saint is given to those special persons who accomplished much for the kingdom of God. Perhaps they, they did something or they wrote something that was, that was really significant. Perhaps they, they lived a, a really holy and, and pious life beyond the, you know, the average Christian. And so they're saints. You know, the, saint, the term saint could even be running a, like just sort of normal conversation. Somebody does something really nice for you. They're such a saint. In this model... What it means to be a saint is, is based on our behavior, what we do. Notice here that that's not how Paul uses this term. Instead, Paul refers to all the church, not simply certain individuals, as saints. More than that, he's calling these people saints. These people with all their baggage. Which, you know, if if being a saint is about our behavior, that's a real stretch, right? Why can Paul do this? To appreciate this, you you really need to know the definition of of what saint even means, okay? Our our term saint in English, along with, you know, sanctify, sanctification, those terms, it all comes from the same word. And the word simply is holy, okay? Holy one, saints, holy one. Ones. And, and while the word holy may have kind of moral, ethical connotations up and running in our thinking, we'll, we'll get to why that may be the case in a moment, the word holy simply means to be set apart, to be different. Now we might ask, okay, how are these people different? I mean, they, you know, they're in the middle of Corinth, and frankly, they look like the rest of Corinth. What makes these people Different. What do you think about for a moment the various organizations, clubs, um, 
groups, whatever that, that you're a part of, okay? What are you a part of other than GCC? What are you doing with your spare time? What are you part of? How did that come into existence? How did that, how, how did that get started? I dare say for, for a vast majority of these entities, the reason they exist is because someone along the way thought they should. Someone along the way said, we need this thing. And other people were like, you know what? I think you're onto something. We should get that thing. And then it got started. And, you know, if enough people agreed that it would continue, then, then it continued. It kept going. It would be easy to think of the church this way too, right? I mean, why does the church exist? Well, the thought might be, well, back in the day, you know, people who had similar beliefs, you know, they thought, hey, we ought to get together every now and then, like a little support group or something. Have some time together. Oh, and, and why does this congregation exist? Well, you know, there were meetings and there were plans and there was organization and things got put into place. And, and for us individually, I mean, why, why are we here? Why did this happen? Well, at one point or another, we made the decision to, you know, wake up on a Sunday morning and get in a car, drive here, and maybe this is your first time, maybe you've, you know, come again and again. But at some point, you're, you're here, and we made the decision to, to be involved in that. There's more to the story for the church than just that. Jesus made this comment in Matthew chapter 6. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church. The church does not simply exist because people thought it should. If that were the case, in light of how messy it often is... I think it would have probably died a long time ago. Whereas the consent of the people, their effort, their organization, their charisma, their ideas, their programs, their worthiness brings most people's, most of these groups into existence. It's God that calls the church into existence. Which gets to what the word church actually means. The word church simply means called out. And to be clear, The one doing the calling, we believe to be God himself. The church exists because it was created by God, and this is his creation. And he is the one who makes it holy. He is the one who sets them apart. And so the reason that Paul can refer to these people as saints is because God has called these people to be part of his church, his church. Body to, to borrow from our assurance of pardon, we, we read from 1 Peter 2 earlier in the service, he has called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He has brought this people together around the finished work of Jesus. And because of what Jesus accomplished, his death in the place of sinners, his, his perfect life credited to their account, received by faith in him, God declares these people to be holy. Even when their behavior isn't really all that holy. It really isn't all that different. In a lot of ways, they're like Corinth. Because, and here's here's the point, they're not holy first and foremost because of their goodness. We are not holy first and foremost because of the goodness of our behavior 
They are holy because of the goodness of their Savior. Now, that sounds like a slogan. Sue me. Um, We're not holy because of the goodness of our behavior. We're holy because of the goodness of our Savior. Paul repeatedly states in the text we just read that these are recipients of grace. We don't make ourselves into saints. First and foremost, we are declared to be saints. We are called saints. If you are part of Christ's church, you look to Jesus in faith and repentance. You're seeking to follow him uh, as a member of good standing of a church that proclaims this message. You are a saint because God, by his grace, has declared you to be a saint. Now, Paul is not simply offering you know, flattery divorced from reality when he calls these people saints. He's acknowledging something very profound. He's acknowledging who these people really are, even as their behavior is is contrary to their sainthood. And it's from this vantage point that he can begin to talk about what's going on in the life of this congregation. In the words of a PCA pastor, a guy named Scott Sauls up in Up in Nashville, he he makes this comment in his book, Befriend, grace comes before ethics. Grace comes before ethics. Before we talk about what we're supposed to do, we need to talk about who we are. And Paul, first and foremost, is going to remind them of who they are in Christ, about the grace that they have received in Christ, and then he's going to get into what that means. And the same is true for us. As we, as a congregation, wrestle with our issues, the same is true for us as we wrestle with our own personal sin. Who am I? So establishing that up front at the beginning, Paul's then going to get in to what this means, and that brings us to our second point for today. What does it mean? I don't believe that I have ever referenced the Lord of the Rings up here before, and so I will do so now. Um... If you're familiar with the story, I mean, you've got one of the main characters is a guy named Aragorn. He's an individual who shows up in the first book. Um, he, he's simply kind of a ranger, uh, a guy who's, you know, this mystical, just, you know, he, he, you don't really know much about him. He's got a hood over his head. He's just kind of, you know, the quiet type. But he starts helping Frodo um, and Sam on their way to, to destroy the ring. But, but as the story develops... You know, you find out more about this guy. He's not your, your average Joe. He's the rightful heir of the throne. He's supposed to be the king. But through a series of events, he has not taken the throne. And so in the, the final installment of the story, he's confronted with the following line. Put aside the ranger. Become who you were born to be. Put aside the ranger. Become who you were born to be. In other words, become in practice who you already are. It's the same logic throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, God will tell his people, be holy. Be holy in practice. Why? For I'm holy. I'm holy, and you are in a relationship with me, and I have set you apart. Now go be holy in your actual living. That's what Paul's doing as well. Church at Corinth, you are saints. Now go be saints. 
What does that look like? As we look at the text here uh, this morning, I think we've got at least three takeaways of what it looks like to be saints that I want us to chase in the time remaining. First, what it means is that the church matters. The church matters. I've been in student ministry for a while, and, and one of the questions that you know, frequent, frequently was asked um, was this, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? You ever heard that one? Um, you know how this, they say that you know, there's no such thing as a stupid question? Um, and I get that in the sense that, you know, you know you're, you're, trying, you're trying to acquire information, and, you know, somebody, you don't call somebody stupid, it's just they're trying to learn. That's, that's great. But there is such a thing as a bad question, Right? I mean, in terms of how it's framed or in terms of, like, the way it's asked or whatever. And I would say that that's the case with, with this one. Do I have to go to church to be a Christian? Here's the problem with that question. Back to the point we just made. Our actions, our behavior, it comes out of who we are. It doesn't make who we are. It comes out of it. And in verse 3 of our text, Paul states this. Go look at verse 3. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're part of the church. You just are. The church universal, yet you're part of that. Those who in every place call upon the name of Jesus. Because throughout Scripture, God's redemption is not just about saving individual persons. His rescuing and redeeming and saving is about a people. Now, there's an individual component of that, to be sure. But it's something bigger than just me and Jesus kind of stuff. And I'll be honest, our English language, I mean, I don't... It's hard to pick on the English language. I'm using it right now, you know, but, but I'll go for it. Um, it. It can lead us astray a little bit because the second person, when I use the word you, I could be talking about you, the individual. I could also be talking about, you know, you collectively, okay? Second person, singular, second person, plural, it's the same thing. So when we read our English Bibles, what can potentially happen is we start reading it and, and go, that's addressing me, Christian, but so often, what we need, if we were good, if we had a good Southern translation, it would be, you know, work out y'all's salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's plural. It's talking to a church. It's working it out together. It's not just talking to me. Yes, there's an individual component of the faith. To the faith. I, am I, am I personally in the faith? It's a question. It's a good question. But there's also a corporate idea, too. We're called to be part of the body. You are part of the body. The question then becomes, how is that, how is that manifesting itself? Now, I get, in light of what we said you know, earlier in the service, the church has the potential to, to wound people. It, it does. We should acknowledge that and be fair to it and recognize that for, for some people, coming to church is a hard deal. It just is. So our hope is that we can ourselves be part of and, and even display what the church is supposed to be in practice. 
so that people would, who love Jesus want to be a part of it. Um, but to be clear, a person doesn't attend church to be a Christian. Um, but it does, it is an expression of what it means to be part of the church. How is that playing itself out in the life of your faith? Because to hear Paul talk, to hear Jesus talk, the church is, is really important. It's something we actually need. Those one another statements that we see, love one another, that happens within the context of being in Christian community, which is messy and yet necessary. Jesus died for it. And so it, it remains as complicated as it can be. It still remains something to long for and strive for. So that's at least one thing that we see from this, that, that, that sainthood, participation in the light, participation as a Christian necessarily involves involvement in the local church. There's another thing I want us to see about what does it look like to, to follow um, Jesus, to, to be part of, of his people, to be saints. Um, it's that the church is equipped. So first, the church matters. The second, the church is equipped. Take a look at verse 4, and we'll read through verse 7. I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Here it is. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. What Paul is going to tell these people is that they, before he deals with all the craziness, They are not lacking in any spiritual gift. In other words, this body, this congregation is equipped through its relationship with Christ to be in practice what they already are. Being saints, striving to be saints in our practice is not simply a matter of our effort, but rather it is a matter of what God is doing in and through us through our relationship with Jesus by his spirit, okay? And this is good news for a church in trouble. It's good news. Because what it means is that they have the resources at their disposal to actually deal with what's going on. They don't have to do the southern hospitality thing where we just play nice, but we're not going to talk about anything real or substantive. We're not going to address any real problems. I get the temptation. I get the temptation for churches in light of what it's like to be part of churches that are just, you know, they all hate each other and want to throw things at each other and all that kind of stuff to just sort of have this kind of very distant, you know, an arm's length kind of experience of church life. But there's something missing there too. And Paul uses the term. It's it's fellowship. Where Christians actually can live and talk and and love each other and serve each other. And and I loved what Carew said just a moment ago when he talks about, like, what do they long for as a church committee? It's the same thing we should long for as believers here together. Which is, yeah, we got different personalities, ideas, experiences, whatever... But we can come together because the Spirit of God 
has, has enabled us to be kind and reasonable and charitable and um, wise. That, that God is at work because his spirit is within his people and he's equipped them to love and to serve one another. Lastly, and I'll, I'll wrap up with this. We see that the, the church matters. We see that the church is equipped. And, but lastly, we see that the church should be a hopeful place. Paul is, like, really committed to the idea that, that, that even though the church is messy, it's worth it. Because God is at work in it. And he is going to use it to make, he's going to use it to make us what he wants us to be. There's something very profound to me about, um, you know, when the church, when you have your moments of difficulty with the church. Paul got those, right? Maybe you've had them time to time. It's always helpful for me to sort of go back to the idea that my frustration potentially mirrors in a lot of ways what Jesus could think about me and how he continues to love me and how he continues to use even a broken place to sanctify me to love something that is difficult at times. That that looks a lot like Jesus with me. There is no better context to actually work out what Christ has called us to do than the life of the local church. And in doing that, in even dealing with the hard stuff that comes along with it, God can use that to make you and me more like his son. I mean, look at what Paul says. Sorry, I've got jumbled papers up here all over the place. Um, I'll get out of the bulletin. Um, Verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. But before he says that, verse 7, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, So here's the situation of these people. They're waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're hopeful that one day they will be what the word, here it is, guiltless. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Now, we're guiltless in the sense, like we said before, we're holy because Christ makes us holy and he, his righteousness is ours. But it's also talking about our practice as well. What if God is using a broken church to make you more like Jesus. Now, I realize that's a complicated question, okay? But I also, I think inevitably so, he's doing that. We live as Christians within a tension. The tension of what we are versus what we're called to be. What we say, the ideal and the real deal. But Paul's convinced that God is at work. He is convinced that the church, even despite its messiness, is worth it. Because that's where God is accomplishing a great deal of our sanctification and our growth. And therefore, 
We need it. We need it. We need not to give up on it because it is an instrument of his grace. It is a means that points us home. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I hope the takeaway of today is not, uh, let's talk about how bad the church is. That's, That's not the point because God is at work in it. And he is using it. He's using it to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our lives. And as I started the service today, I hope you've experienced that. Because that is at work. And God is at work in it. Let me pray for us. Righteous God, we give you thanks for your church. Um, We acknowledge that it's full of sinners. uh, Sinners like us. But we know we need it. And... Uh, I pray for those who've been wounded by the church in here today. Um, I pray that you would uh, give them the courage and the faith to to re-engage and and to um, experience something different and um, to be pointed to your goodness and your grace. Help us here at Grace Community Church. May, May the things we're talking about today not simply be theoretical ideas about a big place of which we're not a part, but but instead, and especially as we continue to um, to to look at First Corinthians, Father, uh, to to see ourselves in here, and and that you would use this, Father, to help us know who we are and to better love and better serve you as your people. To that end, we pray all in Christ's name. Amen.